Hello and welcome to the Word with Web podcast. I'm Eric and I'm here with Pastor Richard Webb. Hello. And in this show, we get a chance to nerd out on a variety of biblical topics with Pastor Richard. Indeed we do. Uh, first of all, before we get started, thank you mu- so much for uh, tuning into this episode, and uh, I'd like to ask you all a quick favor. Our mission here at Hope is to reach out to the world around us and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. So, if you could take a second and rate and review the show, uh, and maybe send it to a friend, that's one thing you can do to help reach more people. Uh, with that, let's just get right on into this conversation. How are you doing today, Richard? I am doing excellent. And thank you. Yeah, and we get to uh, try out this new studio. You might have, uh, there might be a little bit of better audio quality right now where (laughs) instead of being in your office, we're down in a uh, uh, recording studio. So that's kind of cool. It's way fancier. We feel pampered. Yes, yes. Uh, So in today's episode, uh, we're going to be discussing covenants. Um, That's something that's you know, pretty foundational in our relationship with God. Um, yet, as we've talked about in previous episodes, um, things like um, gospel or sin, they're words that we don't often use in our everyday language. Yeah. Um, plus, our, our listeners might not know this, but we record these a couple week in, weeks in advance, and this lines up um, so that the, the sermon uh, from yesterday... Um, was on God being a deal cutter. And it's actually a message that you're going to be preaching here. So it's a little bit of uh, prep work, I guess, for that message coming up. Mm -hmm. Um, But by the time this comes out, your sermon would have already happened. Exactly. But I'm so glad for this because I've already done all my research. Yeah. So, so it makes my life easier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this has been a lot of a lot of fun um, doing this podcast. Just all the overlaps that I've I've noticed between different topics that we've done. Yeah, yeah. But not only that, hearing from people who are listening, because um, I think the, the purpose of this podcast was always to be um, not just a dialogue between you and me or a monologue from mm-hmm. you, but um, a conversation between yeah. a bunch of people and allowing people to kind of join this conversation. So, if you have any uh, thoughts or questions, as always, you can you can send me an email and I'll have that information at the end of the episode. Um, but very first question, let's All just right. get right into it. Here we it. go. Uh, what is a covenant? Because we hear that word a lot mm-hmm. in the Bible. Well, basically, a covenant is an agreement. At its simplest level, it's an agreement between two parties. And that word is a very big word. So, for example, it can be applied in the Old Testament to a business deal, a diplomatic treaty, uh, military terms of surrender, a marriage contract, or a pledge of loyalty to a deity. Um, And what we're looking at is that very last one. Um, But it it refers to all of that. and, and to me, that, that's fascinating because it normally when you hear it now, it's a very religious sounding thing. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't that religious a sounding thing back then. It was, you know, kind of normal. It was, it was our modern contract. Yeah, pretty well. Yeah. Yep. You had stipulations between both parties. Um, and if you had a stronger party, they were dictating the terms. Um, and if you had mutual, then there was negotiation. You know, mm-hmm. very similar. Um, so, why would this have been such a significant thing to ancient people? Oh, wow. Um, part of it was it minimized violence when things went wrong because you had something to appeal to. Um, it also was a way of assuring collaboration. Um, again, you see that there's all kinds of covenants, um, and, and it's used for all kinds of deals. Um, so in a lot of ways, it was, would be important because that's just, in life, there are certain things that are so big, we want to stipulate exactly what are the obligations, and then also, um, you know, who's responsible for what, and then we also want a formal commitment, yes, I will adhere to this. Um, a marriage was a bigger deal back then than now. It involved the merger not only of two people, but two families, and for that reason, most marriages were arranged. And they, they had um, not only just romantic components, but there was a, a, an ethical component to it and also an economic component, because you were probably merging two family farms in the process. Um, and so there was this, all ne- this negotiation of how are we going to do business together, and, um, and, and so that's why... Um, it was an incredibly high taboo on breaking that covenant, what we call divorce, because that often had uh, economic consequences, and sometimes people starved to death because of it, uh, or violence. So the more solemn the covenant, the less chances it's going to be broken. So these are legally binding 
Yeah. Um, and, and held up that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. How is it that people would know, like the, a, a court of law would know that a covenant exists? You know, today we, we might mm-hmm. have a contract that's signed mm-hmm. by both parties. Yeah. Is there something uh, unique that they would have done or, you know, practices that they would have included mm-hmm. with a covenant? Yeah. Um, so the, the equivalent of a signed document was a very big event. I mean, yes, they had handshake covenants, and I will say that a person's word was far more legally binding than it is in modern jurisprudence. You know, in, 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 in the modern court system, your word doesn't really matter for anything. You know, you want to see a document, then you want to see signatures, and you want to be proof that it was you who signed it, you know, and on and on and on. I mean, for example, in Asia, often with a major document, then you have a little seal that, that legally is yours. And it, you can, you've seen them in red with, you know, Chinese, Korean, or Japanese writing, or even a little figure. So there was a signature and then the seal. Um, where back then, your word would be good. But the other thing, though, was this big event. So, for example, there's a whole set of rituals. Uh, the first thing that might happen is you'd get yourself... Um, some animals and slaughtered them, and they were going to later be used for part of a meal. The meal is, is, is very, very central to most covenants. But the first thing you do is you slaughter the animal, then separate the pieces of the animal into two groups with a pathway in between. And then you would have a proclamation by either both parties or the weaker party as they walk between those animals, may this happen to me if for some reason the covenant is broken. And this will matter a lot as we talk about what that means with God. Um, And then at that point, there would be a meal. um, And often when a military treaty was made, this meal would be on the battlefield so the opposing army could see who just got together. Uh, You see that actually in Psalm 23, you prepare a meal in the presence of my enemies. That's a military treaty. Mm. You know, in other words, you come after me, you got to take on my ally, who just happens to be God, you know. Um, And then the other thing is covenants could be reaffirmed. Let's say something had gone a little shady. Well, then you might have a reaffirmation meal um, to reaffirm the covenant. Um, and, And so... All that kind of stuff was part of it, and a lot of people would have get, seen this event, so there were witnesses to it. Uh, so that way, the witnesses are the seal on the document, so to speak. I gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so what, what are kind of all of the, as we, as we touch on, marriage would have been an instance, mm-hmm. what are mm-hmm. some of the other reasons they would have used a covenant? Well, we, a couple of things. We'll just slow down. I'll go through those again. A diplomatic treaty. Okay. If two countries want to form an alliance, yep. or, and, and I've been reading recently on this, that if a very large empire, um, if, if smaller com- countries wanted protection, they would then form an alliance with a large empire, and, and the emperor would then dictate the terms because... The emperor is the stronger party, mm-hmm. and they'd go through the whole thing we talked about, and then there would be the terms of how you live together. Interestingly enough, um, the Ten Commandments are the terms of a covenant treaty, so that's different than what we would call legislated law. Okay. Um, so, legislated law is how we order our society. Uh, covenant terms of how we shall do this thing together. Okay. Um, now kind of moving forward a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, back in the Trinity episode, there was a moment where we were talking about Judaism and Christianity being, mm-hmm. uh, uniquely monotheistic. So they have yeah. one God. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned that there was a special kind of monotheism called covenantal monotheism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so without repeating that whole conversation, mm-hmm. can you kind of explain what covenantal monotheism and how is it different mm-hmm. from other kinds of monotheism? Yeah. Um, let's start with that. Covenantal monotheism didn't exclude the belief there were other gods or spiritual beings. But Jerusalem had a covenant with one, Jerusalem, Israel had a covenant with one God, and they worshiped this God only and no other God. So there could be as many gods out there as, as, it, as the stars in the sky, but Israel worshiped only one. 
Mm-hmm. And so I would, I would contrast it with radical or exclusive monotheism, which says there is only one spiritual being, and um, this comes especially in the West during the Enlightenment, often in kind of a, I don't know what you'd call it, an academic or progressive form of Christianity. I don't like the word progressive. It implies that was real progress. I don't think it was. Um, but it was what the educated elite held is that there was God, but there are no angels, no demons, um, and, and just this one God. And, and that's then referred to as radical monotheism. Uh, and then there's a, an interesting one called intellectual monotheism, which is basically pick a God that works for you and then stick with them. Um, and the Greek experience, you know, it's which God would be most useful for me. So you're, you know, in marriage, the husband might be praying to Zeus and the wife might be praying to Athena for whatever special reasons. Um, And then there's inclusive or pluriform monotheism. Uh, And this would be, for example, the Egyptian understanding of gods. They had many gods, but they were all the manifestation of the same god. Um, And that would be true. Some forms of Hinduism, all the whole pantheon is really a a just diverse manifestation of the same god. Um, So I'll go back to covenantal so we get ourselves out of the weeds. So... Israel didn't care about the existence of other gods. I mean, as far as they were concerned, they did or did not exist, didn't matter. They just knew who they were worshiping. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's why it's called covenantal, because we worship this God, because this God's the one that made a covenant with us. Yep. Okay. Um, now, let's start in the Old Testament, which, mm-hmm. before we even do that, th- my understanding is testament is kind of synonymous with covenant. Is that correct? I would, I would not say so. Um, when I think of a testament, I think of, of what someone writes down and what you inherit. Mm-hmm. So last will and testament. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the Apostle Paul will write about how um, we have been given a testament from Christ and we have our inheritance in Christ. But covenant in this case, in other words, a testament is only ratified when you die, right? Mm-hmm. Where a covenant is made by a living person and it's effective immediately. And so um, I know we talk about the Old and New Testament, and, and in some ways, I think that's a. Um, a misnomer. We are the, you know, um, and, and it, it, but, you know, it's what we have said for centuries, so I don't think we're going to change it. Uh, unless we talk about a testament like a testimony, in other words, the old and new witnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would just, dis- e- either way, I would distinguish them from the covenant because, well, God's still alive. Yeah. And even if we were thinking about the Old Testament as being, you know, old, the old covenant, uh-huh. when we get into the Old Testament, uh, there's a there's a bunch of different covenants, right? So, um, what's the difference between all of them? And and mm-hmm. can you kind of walk through, walk us through? Yep. What are all the covenants that we find in the Old Testament? Mm-hmm. Their purposes, what are the mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff? Yep. The first thing I want to do is talk about a, a. It might be a tempest in a teapot, but it's fun. There's big scholarly debate over whether these four covenants are only one covenant or four separate covenants. Um, and there could be a case for middle positions like, and we'll get into this in a second, is the covenant to Noah, maybe one and the rest of them are simply manifestations of, of the other. Um, I think it matters somewhat, but I don't think the roof's going to cave in where you land, you know. So um, I will go ahead and talk a little bit about that. A couple things. Uh, when we talk about four covenants or four parts of a covenant or one and three, however you land, there's a covenant that um, God made to Noah. There's a covenant that God made to Abraham and Sarah. There's a covenant God made to Israel on Mount Sinai. And there's a covenant that God made to King David about his dynasty lasting forever. A couple things. um, There are stipulations in the covenant to Abraham and Sarah, Israel and David about how they shall do this covenant together and what happens if, uh, if Abraham and Sarah, Israel or David walk away. That's absent from the covenant given to Noah, where God just simply says, I will never, ever do this again. You know, I will never flood the earth, period. No conditions. Um, And I would suggest there's no conditions to the other, but we'll get into that, even though there are stipulations. Um, So, obviously, the first covenant 
nobody can break, but the other covenants are broken wholesalely by God's people over and over and over. Um, but interestingly enough, God does not walk away from his commitment to this covenant or these three covenants. And so that's why I call them unconditional. Not that there aren't stipulations and consequences, but that you can't make God break the covenant and he's already promised that he'll keep the covenant together no matter who breaks it. So we've got this prior promise that he'll hold it. So, so if we back up a little bit, yeah. in, in our modern contracts, mm-hmm. if you and I make a contract, mm-hmm. it, it requires that you do something, that I do something. Mm-hmm. Um, in the ancient covenants between people, mm-hmm. I assume that was true as well. I do mm-hmm. something, you do something. Right. Um, what you're saying is almost that in, in these covenants with God, mm-hmm. God's asking of something, but he's, it's, it's almost like he's saying, there's no condition to this because I'm going to do this, my part anyway. Yeah. In other words, um, I'm going to keep my part of the covenant. I hope you keep yours. But for example, there are consequences. So let's say that you say, I'm going to give you a check. And then you say the benefits of the check is that it's $10 million and you can pay off all your debt. You know, you can get yourself a new house. You can do all kinds of cool stuff. But if you don't cash the check, the downside is, well, you don't have it. Mm-hmm. So there is a, a there is a description of covenant benefits in the covenant to Abraham, and Sarah, to Israel, and to David. And there's also a description of what would be called covenant curses, so blessings and curses. The curses are, are just truth-tellings of this. So the, the, the $10 million check that God is giving them is his life with them and for them. And, and in other words, live this way and you will live in my image and you will have a very good life and you, will, and, you and I will enjoy each other. So it's almost like it's a cause and effect rather than a punishment. Exactly. It's like this is the effect of what 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 happens when mm-hmm. you know when you do this. It's not that I'm going to punish you for it. Right. And and then if you walk away from the covenant, well, you've walked away from our relationship, and now all the benefits you receive are just what you have. In other words, your own, which aren't much. And and so. Um, there are times when God intervenes to draw His people back, but what He never does is say, "I'm done." And this is unique. So this is this funny thing where you can't get God to walk away. But if you walk away, then you're all by yourself because he'll respect your wish. And you won't like what you want. (laughs) You know, and and so, yeah, very concrete consequences. Mm -hmm. Um, But what you never get is God saying, that's it. So in in a modern contract, you and I make a contract and I break it, then it's null and void for you as well. In other words, you have no more covenantal obligations. Mm-hmm. Where with God, He decides to keep His obligations. Yeah, and that's weird because I think among a normal covenant, you know, between new, two nations, if if I break my obligations, then it's null and void for the other nation too. We can go back to war, you know. Or the same thing would be true with a marriage contract. If uh, one of the partners breaks it by adultery or by abandonment, then the marriage contract is null and void. Do we see that in? Uh in the Old Testament, when when Israel fails, does it appear that they understand the covenant as being like this is the the whole covenant is lost, is is voided, or do, like do you know what I'm saying? Like, do they respond as if the whole contract or the whole covenant is gone because they failed it, or do they understand that God is going to hold up his bargain, his end of the bargain anyway? You know, I think it's it's door number two. I think, in fact, Israel often will take for granted that God is not going to walk away, and, and then they will actually manipulate that and use it to their own ends. You see that a lot, uh, that both Isaiah and Jeremiah accuse Israel of saying, well, God's not going to leave us. We have the temple. We can do anything we please. Mm-hmm. So, sort of like, I sin, God forgives. That's his job. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and God's like, no, you're going to reap upon your head the consequences of your actions. And part of it is you're going to decay so morally and, and so societally, your government's going to become so corrupt that any nation that has half, an, you know, has half a minute is going to take you over because you've lost your ability to, to resist. And, and doesn't Paul kind of say that? He says, should we go on sinning so that mm-hmm. God's grace should, should abound even more? Yeah. 
um, it, it sounds like he's kind of hitting at that same, Very that same kind of approach to the contract, yeah. like, or the mm-hmm. covenant that God's just going to forgive me anyway, so I can go ahead and sin all I want. No, and he spells out real consequences too, twice. So in that particular place, he says, no, don't you know you have died to sin and you have now been freed from sin? He's basically saying, why would you want to go back into your self-made prison? Mm-hmm. The basis of that is you could. And now you've re-imprisoned yourself in the slavery of sin, which is absurd because you don't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it, it's never like, well, you're saved by grace, so you can go party and God won't do anything. It's, yeah, you go party and, well, you might hit someone as you drive home drunk, or you might wreck your marriage, or, you, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, you know, if you jump off the Empire State Building, don't get upset if God doesn't rescue you before you hit the ground. Yeah. Um, and doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It means that, well, that was your choice. Yeah. Um, and you may have a lot of explaining to do when you get into heaven, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, the other one was in Romans where he says, and he gave them over to their desires and they received their due penalty and their error, where Paul explicitly says the punishment is built into the sin. Mm. Um, and the logical consequences of us being dumb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've kind of jumped way far ahead. Let's kind of come back to mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. Um, the, the covenants given in the Old Testament. You, now you said there's four of them. Mm-hmm. Um, what do each of those look like? And, and Yeah. And just to muddy it up, I'm going to sneak in what looks like it might be a fifth. Okay. Okay. So the, 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 the might be a fifth starts in Genesis 3, verses 14 through 19. And this is where as God is spelling out the logical consequences of our first parents' rebellion, right in the middle, there seems to be a promise of a wounded victor who will vanquish the, surf, the, the serpent, but at great cost to himself. And again, it's a unilateral promise. And this is why... That's why people might debate that the Noahic covenant may be more a Noahic promise than a Noahic covenant. Mm. It's the same thing here because this, this is, I mean, there are no conditions. I'm just going to do this. And this was the same passage we talked about in the gospel as being mm-hmm. almost the first proclamation of good news, yeah, yeah. good news to come. Yep. But just side note there. Exactly. Which is interesting that, okay, the first word of gospel shows up in Genesis 3. Mm. Um, so the gospel is an Old Testament thing too. So, okay, so then we have the covenant to Noah or the Noahic covenant. Once again, it's unilateral, just like what's in Genesis. Just God promises, I will, I will never destroy the earth again. And, and the question, once again, is, is that a covenant or a promise? Um, now, there's sometimes when God just says, I will make a covenant with you. So, there's some warrant calling these things covenants because God is seeming to use that word when he just promises stuff. Um, the one that is most famous would probably be the Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and, and, and the covenants that follow. Um, this is the foundational covenant that Yahweh makes to Abraham and Sarah. And it's literally, come and go with me to a land I will show you, and then I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. you know, I will bless all nations through you. And, it, and, and so all of a sudden we get this, this, this invitation to go on a journey with God and partner with God in a, in a deal of a century. Um, once again, the only stipulation is come and go with me. So, you know, if you don't, well, I'll know you're not interested, you know, and, and so they pack it up and off they go. Um, interesting, this covenant is then reaffirmed or re-ratified six more times in the book of Genesis, which is just crazy. And then if you keep going, God also affirms this covenant with Isaac and then with Jacob twice. So we've got eight times that this initial promise is said over and over and over and over again. And by the way, it seems to be broken just as many times. Okay. So is, is, he, is, is God reinitiating it every time mm-hmm. it's broken? Is that like the, what, what starts him... Um, not really. They don't seem to be literarily tight. It's not a one-on-one correspondence. Um, but you see, um, several times where, you know, Abraham just behaves like a brute. You know, he's twice, he, he, he asked Sarah to act like his sister. So he avoids getting into trouble either by the Egyptians or by a, another kingdom. I think it's the Amalekites. I can't remember. Um, which is just a really dumb and jerky thing to do. Um, and then Sarah, you know, just when you think, you know, she's getting off scot-free, she decides we're going to have our kid that God promised and I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to control how it happens because I don't trust God enough. So let's take the slave, the Egyptian slave, Hagar, and, 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 you know, we'll just rape her and, and then she'll take the kid, she'll get pregnant and then that'll be our kid. 
you know, and you know, and then then the whole. I mean, you talk about family dysfunction; it just becomes a thorough mess. Um, and uh, so we know that it just goes on and on. But God just keeps saying, "I really mean it. I really mean it. I really mean it." Um, and one time he goes out of his way where he says, okay, this time, Abraham, Abraham has a question, says, when are we going to have a kid or is my estate going to go to my hired hand, Eliezer? God says, no, no, you're going to have a kid. So let's have a banquet to affirm it, cut some animals in half. And by all logic, Abraham should walk between those animals. But instead, Abraham falls asleep. He wakes up and sees God between those animals in the form of a smoking pot and flaming torch. And then he speaks and then reaffirms the covenant as he's going through, which is really weird because in a curious, bizarre way, God is actually sacrificing to Abraham. And this is going to be the first out of two times that God actually is very obviously assuming the position of the weaker party. Yeah, because didn't you say the weaker party normally walks through first? Mm -hmm. And so that's almost that, that... That flipping again that we yeah. talked about several times, flipping mm-hmm. of the world upside down, where yeah. um, God's almost yeah, yeah serving Abraham. Then and there's another. Well, in this one, Abraham brings the barbecue because he's the he's the weaker party, but then God flips it. In another one, God brings the barbecue, and that's the almost sacrifice of Isaac. Mm-hmm. So, which once again, God is constantly saying, "I'm taking responsibility," which is. If you just stand back, this is God, creator of, the, creator of the universe. You know, we are not creator of the universe. We are little humans, dinky little humans, really dinky little humans. You know, out of the bazillions of galaxies far, far away, you know, we are in one of the more average galaxies, and then we're on one of the far, you know, 20th tier suburbs, you know, way out in the backwaters, you know, in, in a dinky little planet, and and God is paying attention to us, and, and he's holding himself responsible to his puny little creation. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just got to, it takes your breath away. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So then that covenant moves on into Exodus. Yep. And then again, this is where the debate is. Is this an extension of Abraham's covenant or is it a brand new covenant? And, and before we get into that, then mm-hmm. is, is there, um, what, what are we seeing? What's, what's, I guess, the argument between it being a new covenant or an extension of it? Um, there's fuzziness in how the authors of the New Testament see it. Um, most of the time, the New Testament authors refer to the whole business as the Old Covenant, or just the Covenant. Mm-hmm. There's one time in Romans 9 that Paul refers to him as the Covenants. Um, and so, that would be one argument. The other is that if they're, condi- if, if they're New Covenants, are they nullifying what came before? Okay. And and it, it seems like the uh, covenant between Abraham and Sarah was pretty much a forever covenant. Um, so, what is this new thing if it's independent of that? Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yep. Um, so, that's why I land on them being more the, the um, Abraham and Sarah covenant, the, the Noah covenant, and the David covenant are, at least the, the, the Noah and the Abraham and Sarah covenants are, are I think, are uh, there's continuity at the very minimum, but I think their manifestations are the same. The David covenant, I think, is an outgrowth where he's getting very specific and says, your dynasty will be forever. Mm. Um, so, it's more individual than than corporate. Yeah, yep. But it plays into the big covenant because um, we find out that when God himself comes to make good on the covenant as Jesus, he also fulfills the promise to David that his dynasty will rule forever because, well, now Jesus is a descendant of David, and that means God is a descendant of David, which is really quirky. God creates David and then descends from him. Hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. better than drugs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and so, yeah, since God's going to reign forever against the house of David, it's now reigning forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so... With the Mosaic Covenant, can you mm-hmm. kind of explain the details of what's going on there and and yeah. and, and how that mm-hmm. continues on throughout the rest of the book? Oh, this is huge. Um, again, this is a weird covenant um, because usually covenants are if thens. If we do this, then the you know then the covenant holds. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't, then the covenant's null and void. Uh, and we did talk about blessings and curses, but those were logical consequences rather than nulling and voiding the covenant. Uh, so. God rescues his people, 
And they've left Egypt, and now they're in the wilderness. And then they come to Sinai, and Sinai is also the place that Moses saw the burning bush. And now God uh, invites Moses up to Sinai and gives him the law along with, with a, and, and then also, again, I would call it a covenant affirmation, but we could also call it a covenant. And um, it, it's very interesting how it reads. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then it goes into the Ten Commandments. And it's not like, if you keep these Ten Commandments, then I will be your God. It's because I am your God. In other words, because we already have a covenant relationship, hence Abraham and Sarah's covenant, this is what it looks like. Um, So it's a description. Now, what's new is it's also a description of the freedom that God has brought them into uh, and, 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 and so it's 10 descriptions of what freedom looks like. Mm. And then the other, um, what is it, 304 commandments, there are 316 commandments, I believe, are actually case studies of the 10. Okay. And then the 10 are boiled down to two, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself, which... Is, goes way back to Genesis 2. This is what our first parents were, were called to do. So, um, let's see how I would put this. Go ahead. Well, so, so this, this covenant has, um, it, it has the, the law with it. Is that kind of acting more as like, instead of conditions, it's more of a, like you said, it was a description. So I'm, mm-hmm. I, I think about like the fruit of the Spirit in the New Testament, yeah, yeah. where this is what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this is what, would it be accurate to say, like, this is what it looks like to um, live fully into this covenant? Yeah, this is what it looks like to live in freedom. Um, I, I've set you free. Here's what freedom looks like. And I've set you free because I'm committed to you and I'm bound to you by my covenant. Mm-hmm. So again, that leads me to my, to, to my belief. This is a, an affirmation of the Abraham Sarah covenant. I'm sure if anybody's a theology nerd, they're at this ready saying, I'm going to take this dude on. Yeah. Um, um, and, and, and again, um, I think it's so important because most because often Protestants say, "Well, oh, if there's no condition, then I can ignore them." <clears throat> Excuse me, um, but I think God's very clear. Um, well, and if you aren't going to live this way, then you're going to live life like it was in Egypt again, except you will be your own Pharaoh, you know, and you'll be each other's Pharaoh, oppressing each other as you have opportunity, mm-hmm. um, and 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 so. This is this is the thing about God's covenants, even though they're free and unconditional, they have juice. I don't want to say teeth because it's not threatening. It's and maybe maybe put it this way is one of the nicknames for the law is the pathway or the path of life. And so it, it's not a conditional covenant where if you walk this path, you will walk it to life. No, it's if you walk this path, you are in life. Mm-hmm. And so that's the gift. And what's astounding is that we keep refusing. <laughs> yeah. And it, maybe we can get that, the, the sin episode, I guess, kind of got into yeah. why mm-hmm. and we refuse it. Um, but why, why, how would you explain that? How would you explain if this covenant brings this great life, does, mm-hmm. does Israel not, um, do they not fully experience it and, and kind of get a taste of it? Or do they... Do they? Do you ever see in the Old Testament where they're they're uh, following that covenant pretty solidly, or is it all just one failure after another? Well, there are brief periods of light. Yeah. <laughs> um, for example, if you look in Judges, when there's actually an active judge, they seem to behave themselves. Hmm. But the minute that judge passes away, well, then they go back. They sort of just default. They always need a guide, be it, you know. Um, and then they finally even reject the judges and demand a king. Mm-hmm. Uh, the irony is they already have a king. His name is God. Mm-hmm. So that's like the ultimate rebellion. It's the end of Book of Judges. It's a very sad ending. And we know how the first king went not so well. Yeah. And very few kings thereafter finish well. 
In fact, in, when the kingdoms, and then we get civil war, and now we have two kingdoms of Israel, the northern and the southern. The northern kingdom has no good ki- kings from there on out. Every one of them is a failure, and they make a mess. Mm-hmm. Southern kingdom, I think one third of the kings are okay, two thirds not so okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we there for some bizarre reason. I, I would say when we talk about sin, another way of defining sin is a kind of insanity. Mm-hmm. Where and we know this because our vision was distorted. That's how you know their eyes were opened. All right, it's sarcasm, and so now they see God as an adversary or an enemy or an obstacle, and each other the same way, which is an untrue vision of God. Mm-hmm. You know, before they had a clear vision of God and each other, and now that now we don't. So we live in vision distortion, um, and so that distortion causes us to confuse pathways. Mm. And we keep thinking our own pathway is the path of life. We, it's almost like we see the, the covenant as uh, uh, restrictions or as these burdensome expectations rather mm-hmm. than, like you said, the, the, the path of freedom. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, we, we make the covenant slavery when it's mm-hmm. really a, a, the freedom. Oh, absolutely. Let me give you a, an interesting example. If you were to ask your average people on the street what the afterlife is going to be like, they'd basically say infinite material wealth and I get everything I want. Mm. Um, and you think, wait a second, um, that's exactly the problem. In other words, heaven is going to be the place where you can send your brains out. Yeah. You know, I mean, getting your own way has never worked. Why would it suddenly be a reward, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the same thing with infinite material stuff. Actually, if you look statistically at everyone who's won a lottery, usually their lives disintegrate. Yeah. We don't know what to do with stuff other than collapse in on it. Hmm. You know, and so, and yet we keep thinking that, that God's reward for a good life is to give us this, which he would call hell, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so that that doesn't explain the insanity, but it shows we are pretty insane. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Um, so anything else you want to add to the Mosaic Covenant before we move on to David? Um, not really, just other than the fact that they break it over and over and over again. God sometimes intervenes. Oh, one delicious irony. Just got to describe it. So this is right at the giving of the covenant. Mm-hmm. And so Moses is up there getting all the details. Oh, by the way, right before all this, uh, Moses is saying, you know, you know, God is saying, will you, will you pledge to follow me? And they all, yes, we will. We will trust you. We will obey your laws. Yes. And then Moses goes up to get them. And then, well, what do they do? Ah, let's make our own God and call him Yahweh. And then let's party and, and have unrestraint and, and do what we want. And, and we'll call that worshiping and obeying God. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And then Moses comes down and, well, there's this golden calf. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's like, well, oops. Yeah. <laughs> and that thing's right after they pledged loyalty to Yahweh. So, I mean, you're just like, this thing is not off to a great start. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's crazy how quickly... Those things uh, devolve. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't even fully uh, brought to the people before no, everything. It wasn't. Goes mm-hmm. goes wrong. So, um, okay. So now moving on to David, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which we've touched on a little bit. Yeah. Um, can you s- lay the groundwork for for you know the the now I'm, I'm trying to use the word re- renewing of that covenant mm-hmm. uh, instead of the making of a new one with David specifically. Mm-hmm. And, and David, that's the strongest argument for a separate covenant because it's focusing on his leadership. Okay. But I think it's based on God's commitment to all the people. Mm-hmm. Um, so David actually, um, he's now getting all wealthy and fancy. And this is usually the beginning of a downfall of, of, of an Israelite king. And that comes in a few more chapters. Um, but he, he, he looks out and goes, well, you know, I've got this really cool house. God needs a really cool house. Um, and so he says, ah, oh, I'm going to design it, and I'm going to make it great and glorious and everything. And then he brings in the prophet, basically, to get the prophet to bless it. I'll just add a, 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 just a little commentary. How many times do we have this great grand idea and we want God to bless it, rather than asking God, what are you blessing and how can we join you? So David's pulling that. God bless what I want. And the prophet Nathan goes, oh, that sounds like a great idea. God needs a house too. Let's build him a house. Well, then, you know, Nathan goes home and that night he goes to sleep and God shows up in his dream and says, I don't need no house. 
And he says, heaven is, is in my throne and the earth is my footstool. What the heck do I need that for? But he says, yeah, we'll work with that. And God often is working with things that, you know, he's, he doesn't need or doesn't want. Um, and he says, but what I will do and tell David this, that I will build a house for him. In this case, the word house means the royal family, the house of David, the dynasty, and it shall last forever. So that's a more important house than, than, than me having a building. But yeah, you, you know, and you go ahead and gather the building materials, but your son's going to build it because, well, you got too darn much blood on your hands. Mm-hmm. Um, so interestingly enough, God's promise to David that he will have a royal house forever is in the midst of David kind of getting it wrong. You know, and, and trying to do stuff for God without asking God what he thinks, which I think is fascinating because God is blessing him in the midst of, it's not quite a sin, but it's like a little bit of hubris kicking on in, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there is a cycle you see in scripture and it goes back to the golden calf where, you know, everything's great. And then Israel, or in this case, David will biff it. And then this creates a crisis. How will you know, the people be reconciled to God after, you know, the rebellion. And then God creates a way, and that's actually how the narrative drives forward in the first five books of the Bible. And then that way is enacted, and then everything is great again, and you can almost hear a rabbi going, what can go wrong? And then we crash again. Mm -hmm. And so this is almost a foreshadowing. We're going to see the same repeated pattern here because David, you know, makes a little mess by, you know, arrogantly going forward with something God doesn't necessarily want, um, and which shows that God, David is not the greatest listener. Um, and even the prophet just, you know, initially says, yeah, you go for it without asking God what he wants. So there's two people who are, you know, not paying attention to God. And then finally God intervenes and says, no, this is not anything I really need. But then graciously says, go ahead and build it anyways if you want. But let me tell you something more important. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And so it's, in other words, God's promises in this case often occur in the midst of human frailty and sometimes in response to human frailty. But this one, that's all put together. God doesn't wait for him to really biff it, you know, Mm -hmm. but there is also the foreshadowing that David will indeed keep being arrogant and then he's going to do some really nasty stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. So this is maybe a little bit of a random question, but Mm -hmm. we talk a lot about the promises of God, right? And and living into and, and trusting that the things that God is, promises us, mm-hmm. He's He's gonna, um, He's faithful to keep that. Yeah. Um, and you know, now we've talked about this a lot that we're not necessarily good on our end. But um, I remember having this conversation in seminary with a bunch of my classmates about specifically about Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Mm. which is a very well-known passage that says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And the the conversation was around whether that was a promise for us today, mm. that people were saying like, I think people take it out of context because that wasn't meant for, that was meant for uh, the Israelites, right? And, and you know, people mm. of, often read into the prospering you as, as yeah. material prospering and, and, you know, we like to use that that passage quite a bit. Um, how do we know? Because mm-hmm. the, the covenant to David, you're saying, is uniquely to David. Right. And so the promises associated with that mm-hmm. are not necessarily uh, individualized to us today. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, like, how does a person know that these promises, whether they are applicable to them in their mm-hmm. lives today? Oh, this is great. I want to go back to the promise to David. While it is a promise to the Davidic monarchy, mm-hmm. we benefit it because the ultimate expression of the Davidic monarchy is Jesus. Mm-hmm. So the promise to David works out in benefit for us, Yeah. Um, even though we're not the direct recipients of the promise. Um, so let's get to Jeremiah 29. <laughs> um, you have to read before where... Um, this is the first wave of exile into Babylon. There's two more waves that are going to happen. This would be the wave that Daniel was exiled into. Per, and, yep, that would be the case. And, um, and so there's a lot of prophets running around saying, don't even unpack your bags. God's going to get us out of this. It's going to be great. Don't even bother worry. You know, just, you know, 
Um, and then Jeremiah says, no, not going to happen. You're going to be here a good while. Unpack your bags, build houses. Now I'm paraphrasing scripture, uh, plant gardens, um, give your kids in marriage, have lots of kids, grandkids, you know, just be fruitful and multiply literally. And by the way, pray for the welfare of the land you're in and the city for its welfare is your welfare. So literally, be good Babylonian citizens, which that's the last thing they want to hear. And then he says, in the context of living in Babylon very long term, for I know the plans I have for you in Babylon. Plans, you know, not to harm you, but to prosper you in Babylon. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what happens, what you're referring to is people just hear, well, I had to know the plans I have for you to prosper you and not to harm you. Isn't that great? You get the prosperity gospel. Mm -hmm. You know, and somebody sticks out on a Hallmark card and hands it to you. Oh, cute. Mm -hmm. You know, and God's like, ew. (laughs) (laughs) What's going on? Well, I think one of the ways to read the Bible interpretively is if the shoe fits. So if you go to Psalm 23, we have a parallel. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and many of them would have considered Babylon the shadow of death. Mm-hmm. It's a nasty place. Um, I fear no evil because you're with me. You sit at a table before me. You spread a banquet in front of my enemies. You anoint my head in oil in front of my enemies. And, and, and all of this is happening in the valley of the shadow of death. I'm getting blessing after blessing in the valley of the shadow of death, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and my and and in the valley of the shadow of death, my cup f- runs over. So what I think that what this promise is, is I can fill your cup in Babylon. I can prosper you in Babylon, you know, and you will be a blessing to Babylon, which then means you will start fulfilling your prime directive, which is to be a blessing to the nations. And I had to haul your butts out of Israel and into Babylon to get you to actually start doing your job, you know, yeah. um, which is really funny. But in that, you will be blessed. So I would say there are times when we are in Babylon, a rough situation, and you could nickname the Babylon as the valley of the shadow of death. And the promise is... God ain't stopped by where you are. And not only can he prosper you in really tough spaces, and prosperity doesn't necessarily mean a life of ease, it could really be hard. Mm-hmm. And through you, he will bless those around you, including even your persecutors. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a wonderful, mysterious promise that God can pretty well work anything to your benefit and his purposes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's another way of saying Romans 8, 28 and 29. Mm-hmm. You wonder if Paul wasn't thinking about Jeremiah 29. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, as we kind of, uh, I guess, put a bow on to the mm-hmm. Old Testament yeah. um, covenants, how would you maybe summarize um, the Old Testament covenant <laughs> and as continued through all of these different mm-hmm. people, mm-hmm. Um, how would you summarize that as we head into the New Testament? Like what God is promising Mm -hmm. and asking. Mm -hmm. This is what God is promising, is that he will use this one particular people who are definitely no more virtuous than the rest of us, if not even dumber. Not the the people, but the story is hilarious about how they just keep going off the rails. Um, And he's going to use them to rescue the entire planet. And the promise is, through them, all nations will come to know Yahweh and become the people of God, which is just mind-blowing, mm-hmm. you know. And, and that's the promise to Abraham and Sarah that's then reaffirmed to all of Israel. It's also reaffirmed to Isaac and Jacob. Um, we see God working his promise through Joseph, even though he doesn't explicitly name it, he does it, you know, and then... Uh, we see that working all the way through the misadventures of of Israel as a, as a nation, you know, and then into the exile. You just quoted, um, you know, Jeremiah twenty nine, where he's still not left his people, and he has, you know, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. That's also spoken to the exiled people, you know, and and then the promise that one day, you know. Um, there will be someone who will come and, and, and take care of it all. Daniel, we're still in exile when Daniel's getting his visions, um, sees the vision of someone that looks like a human being, the Son of Man, uh, comes on the clouds at the throne of the Ancient of Days, and he's seated there, given all power, honor, and authority. And, and, and so 
that person becomes associated with, with someone who's been chosen by God. The word is anointed, which in Hebrew is Mashiach, which gets in English Messiah, who will, on, be, on God's behalf, take care of the problem. This is connected to the Genesis um, 3 promise that there will be a wounded victor who will come and destroy the, the serpent, a shorthand for evil, but at great cost, even the cost of his life. Um, and so everything is rushing towards this figure who's going to restore stuff. And all the way through, the people keep being their own worst enemy. So one of the meta questions asked all the way through this covenant is, is who's really the devil? If I can use that as a shorthand, some supernatural figure or the people themselves? Mm. Obviously, the answer is both. Um, because the people keep self-sabotaging just brilliantly. The other thing the covenant is, is an invitation already to the life of freedom. In other words, trust me, here's what it looks like. Live in it. This is my gift to you. Uh, Rabbis, even modern rabbis, refer to the Torah as the gift from God, which confuses Protestants like crazy, um, since often we regard it as, well, that thing. Yeah. You know, and I do believe that's true because, again, I freed you. Here's 10 ways that freedom looks, you know, 10 ways to view freedom. These are the 10 um, descriptions of freedom. Mm -hmm. And then we'll have, you know, 304 case studies of how to live free. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just mind-blowing. Yeah. So I've got two questions written down here that Uh I I think we've already answered in Mm -hmm. kind of surprising ways, but I want to at least Mm -hmm. state them so so it's kind of clarified. The first one was, what makes a covenant conditional versus unconditional? And Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm hearing is is that God's covenants were always unconditional, that um, there wasn't like a, hey, do this or it's broken. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then the next question was, why not make just one unconditional covenant? Why continue to make these covenants? Mm-hmm. And what I'm hearing, again, to kind of backtrack or to, to mm-hmm. summarize, is that it, it kind of was one covenant just being reaffirmed, reaffirmed, reaffirmed yeah. over and over with different, different people throughout different times. Yeah. Um, would you add anything else to either one of those, the, the conditionality of covenants or um, making of one covenant versus four? Um, not really that, but, but when we talk about the conditionality of the covenant, what I find interesting is um, that as you see God over and over again affirming it while the people keep breaking it, this starts to add up to a pattern of behavior on God's part and ours, unfortunately. Uh, ours is rebellion. His is um, what is often translated as steadfast love, um, or as Paul will call it, the righteousness of God. And there's a Hebrew word for chesed, and it means God is chesed, which means God is going to keep his promises no matter what. Um, and... Uh, you could also call it the faithfulness of God. Um, it's a very big word that requires several English words. So I think N.T. Wright finally got all nerdy and called it the faithful covenant justice of God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's clunky. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's, it, that's probably the, the best, I've, best way to describe it. And, 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 and so then what, if, if this is God's character, then God's being is, I mean, in other words, his promises are true for us as much as they were true for the people at Sinai. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay, so now as we move into the New Testament and, and focusing in on Jesus, um, there's a passage in Matthew 5. I just want to mm-hmm. clarify that this is talking about the covenant. It says, mm-hmm. um, it's Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Would it be accurate to say abolish the old covenant or the, 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 mm-hmm. the covenant made mm-hmm. with Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the old covenant? Ah, and I'm going to walk, I'm going to walk into two things. I'm going to answer your question directly. <laughs> so I don't forget it. Mm-hmm. Um, then I'll go to the second thing. Um, I love the way the Bible project puts it is that Jesus came to fill up the covenant um, in other words, he's the first human being, because he is a human being as well as God, who actually lives the entire covenant. He's the one who completely trusts his father. So we see in Jesus what a person looks like when they live in the stipulations of the covenant. 
um, we see what a whole life looks like. You know, I love little phrases like, you know, Jesus was never in a hurry. I think that's more important than the miracles, honestly. Because we start seeing someone who has no anxiety, no depression, um, and no behaviors that result from that, um, does not make up stuff about other people, sees them honestly and clearly, does not deceive himself or others. You know, I mean, this person is living the most emotionally healthy life that anyone's ever lived on the planet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and he walks with this amazing authority, not because he can do miracles, which he can, but because of his character. And so we have a walking, talking version of what Israel would have looked like had they kept it. Mm-hmm. And every now and then there's someone who approximates it, but Jesus fills it up. Mm-hmm. So in that way, I'm not coming here to abolish the law and prophets. I'm here to fill them up. The other thing would be, another way to look at it is to make good on what they promise. So that's why Matthew will say, well, Jesus fulfilled this, this passage, and fulfilled this. In other words, Jesus is the answer to those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's sort of a double thing. He's filling it up in terms of his behavior, where he's the one who lives the law fully, Mm-hmm. And then secondarily, he's filling up the promises by becoming the conclusion. He becomes the action of God to, make the pro- to, to actually act on the promise and make good on it. So, is, is it accurate? He's, he's both parties in the covenant. Mm-hmm. So, he's, he's both God and Israel. He's yes. an Israelite. Right. So, is that, is that kind of what you're getting at? Someone yeah. that he, he can... He act, Well, here's where it gets really wild, is he actually fulfills, fills up Israel's mission. Israel's mission is to be the way God rescues the planet. And clearly, Israel has demonstrated they have no interest in that. They walk off the job so many times, I think I've lost count. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and at present, it's a big, ugly mess. You know, you, Israel in the first century was bleh. Um, mm. <laughs> there were some faithful Israelites, and they followed Jesus, you know. Um, but the religious establishment was a fractured, divisive, messed up piece of business. And the monarchy wasn't even Jewish. I mean, it just, it's like a dumpster fire, you know. And, and so here comes this one true Israelite, which would be another way of describing him, who actually begins to fill up, fulfill God's mission for Israel in his life. And the first thing he does is he invites Israelites themselves to join in. He does the mission to the sick, the lame, the blind. He forgives sins, you know, which is where he's doing things only God can do. But God aims to forgive the sins of the world through the, the invitation of, of, of Israel. So that's happening. And then ultimately, his death and resurrection finally complete, fulfill the mission of Israel to draw all nations to the Lord. Now, that keeps going, and Paul will talk about continuing to accomplish the works of Christ. You know, if you move into the book of Acts, where the first followers are given the Spirit, and then Gentiles start following Jesus, and that's explained as now the prophecies of the Old Testament are becoming fulfilled, because now the whole world is joining the people of God. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, so that's the significance of him being, a, one of the, the, the major significance of him being human is that in this way, Israel finally does fulfill its mission because he is Israel. Because God does the, God does the work on both ends of that, of that covenant. Isn't that weird? God is working both sides. Yeah, yeah, he's becoming the, um, becoming the blessing to the nations from, mm-hmm. what is that, Genesis 12. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Okay. And so Abraham and Sarah get their their promise realized. Mm-hmm. So then we get to Jesus making this new covenant. Mm-hmm. So in Luke twenty two, in mm-hmm. the same way after the supper, he took the cup, saying, "This is the covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you." This is at the last supper. Mm-hmm. What's this new covenant that Jesus is then making? Mm-hmm. Um, with the people. Uh, yep. The phrase new covenant originates in Jeremiah 31. Um, and this is a promise during the exile when it says, the days are surely coming, says the Lord. This is 3131 of Jeremiah. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, uh, 
It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, by the way, though I, you know, was their husband, says the Lord. I mean, you know, no bitterness there, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, let's just remind you of what happened, yeah. you know. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then this is really cool. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. And says the Lord, For I will, I will forgive their brokenness, their twistedness, their distortion. That's what the word iniquity means. It's avon. It means to be distorted, to be bent, to be crooked, um, to be all pulled out of shape. I will forgive that, and then I will remember their sins no more. Um this is the this is the language of new covenant now it's interesting that in the midst of all this new not like the old language it says right here i will put my law within them so it's not null and voiding the old covenant as much as it's making the old covenant work it's sort of like a new covenant is incorporating the old covenant um you know it's not like oh that didn't work i got a plan b now yeah it's like no plan, plan a is going to work and this is how it's going to work with this new covenant that's going to help the old covenant work. Yeah. Or not help, but make it work. So um, then the big debate, of course, theologians, you know, they're not employed if they can't debate something, is, the, is this actually a new covenant or, or not? And so N.T. Wright, once again to the rescue, he refers to the new covenant as the renewed covenant. Mm-hmm. And he's not completely out of his mind, because if you were to take a look at, uh, at Mark's version of the Lord's Supper, this is what it says. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks to them, and all of them drank of it, he said to them, This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And now, I don't want to argue too much from silence, but there he's not saying this is the blood of the new covenant. And, and so there, there's why the debate is sometimes it's the covenant, sometimes it's the new covenant. Which is it? And so N.T. Wright, again, because he's a theologian, says, well, we'll just say yes. <laughs> you know, this is mm. the renewed covenant. But the way I would put it this way is it, it is new that the law will be written on our hearts. And, and, and Paul calls that the fruit of the Spirit. Um, but what's written on our hearts are the stipulations of the old covenant. But no longer do we have to keep them out of, uh, you know, what's the word? No longer will we just automatically rebel and, and they, all they do is show our brokenness. That, that slowly over time, God's Spirit will be working them into us in a way that's unique from the time of, of Sinai. That, that really helps me to think about it. You said a couple things there that, that you know, this, this new covenant wasn't like, isn't like the plan B. It yeah. wasn't like, oh, because you almost start thinking in your head, well, like my question that I asked before, why mm-hmm. not just wait, make one covenant? Yeah, yeah. Because then it's like, well, you know, shouldn't God have known that that these all would have failed so many times mm-hmm. and why not just mm-hmm. make, why not just jump right to the one that actually yeah. is going to work, right? But the way you're explaining it as maybe it's just a renewed covenant. Yeah. To, to make maybe a, a possibly bad analogy, if it's like a covenant is you got a book, mm-hmm. God's not throwing that book out, that covenant out and making a new book. Right. He's adding new chapters to it. And it, so there's, yeah. there's, it's still the same book. Yeah. It's still, it's still the same covenant. He's just um, enhancing it more, mm-hmm. I guess. Is that, would that be accurate? Exactly. In fact, what's interesting is Jesus who makes the new covenant is the one who makes good on the promises of the old covenant because the promise of the wounded victor comes true in Jesus. Uh, the promise that the whole nation, all nations will be blessed through Israel comes true in Jesus. Uh, the promise of freedom uh, on Sinai comes true in Jesus. The promise to David that his, um, that his, his, his house shall rule forever comes true in Jesus. So, very clearly, the old covenant is not scrapped, mm-hmm. but it's actually pushed forward with the new covenant. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then, then we get the promise in Revelation that one day the whole thing will be radically realized rather than this ambiguity we now live in where we live simultaneously in this present broken age and also the kingdom of God. Yeah. Um, that, 
in more detail should be another talk. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, and, and some of that was in the gospel episode. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. constantly thinking about that messenger that's running from the battlefield to the city to, mm-hmm. to let people know about the good news. Yeah. Um, that's still coming that we're just kind of in yeah. this in between time of, yeah. um, he's on the throne, but maybe everyone doesn't know it yet. Yep. Um, so, well, I think in this conversation, what's, what's helped me, um, and I continually have to remind myself about the relevance of the Old mm-hmm. Testament and how if it, if it just doesn't make sense to me, maybe I'm looking at it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. I like how you framed the, 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 the uh, Ten Commandments as descriptions and um, the covenants as God being always unconditional and it being one continual covenant rather mm-hmm. than, you know, almost like mistake after mistake of, you know, yeah, yeah. having to do it over. Yeah. Um, and then the, it being a, a description of freedom and blessing rather mm-hmm. than, uh, rather than punishing for breaking that covenant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think those are the big things that I'm taking out of yeah, this conversation. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd want to add to specifically what Jesus does to the covenants mm-hmm. and maybe the promise of the covenants? moving forward. Yeah. And, and again, this isn't anti Ray, but it's based off of what he's written. The way I sometimes put it is, especially at Genesis 15, you know, where the God goes through uh, between the pieces of, of animal, um, you know, with the smoking pot and flaming torch. Another way of putting it is, I will keep this promise even if it kills me. And in Christ, it does. Mm-hmm. So Christ is actually the demonstration of the promise of the covenant. Because God holds the covenant together even at the expense of his own life. That's how committed God is to the covenant. He dies to keep the covenant. Mm-hmm. And then he takes the consequences of all our rebellion and, and how many times we've broken it, and he throws it into hell and leaves it there, and then rises victorious with an invitation to join him. Mm-hmm. That's good. I think I'm just thinking about that, that how faithful God is in this mm-hmm. covenant process, yeah. regardless of how unfaithful we are. <laughs> yes. It's it, it just the, the theme that comes through is mm-hmm. God's showing up and yeah, yeah. every single time mm-hmm. faithfully, yeah. regardless of the conditions. Yeah. And so. that's basically Romans. Uh, the book of Romans all the way up to chapter 12 is Paul unpacking that faithfulness very quickly in a way that both Jews and, and Gentiles can understand it. And it sounds like that would have been a kind of a shocking thing regardless of the, the, the age that you live in, whether, mm-hmm. whether you're living under like modern times of having contracts and having to fulfill different sides of it or yeah, mo- ancient yeah. covenants still yeah, would have had yeah. that um, breaking of a covenant if someone, yeah, someone yeah. failed. And, mm-hmm. and, and maybe there's a lot of shock element or, yeah. or shock in this that yeah. God's a shocking uh, type of God who maybe doesn't play by, the, by those same Mm-hmm. rules. Yeah, in an odd way, where in American corporate um, contracts, um, both companies have big departments of lawyers to see how quickly they can get out of the contract. Mm-hmm. You know, so immediately after the contract's signed, they start looking for loopholes. Mm. Where God's, you know, if you were to use, if God were a corporation, he has all kinds of lawyers to see how he can maintain the contract despite what the other company does. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, and the other company's like, what? what are you doing? Yeah. Why are you still holding yourself obligated to this thing, even though we just broke it. Yeah. He's saying, well, cause. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, good. I, I think that just about covers everything. Anything else you want to add before no. we wrap it up? Uh-oh, no, this sounds good. All right. Well, it's been fun. Uh, thanks again, as always, for joining us today. Um, as always, if you have any questions on a previous topic or a suggestion for a future one, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and you can email me directly at eric.payton at hopewdm.org. That's Eric with a C and Peyton with an E. And just including the subject line, Word with Web, uh, that would help me out a lot. So we'll talk to you next time. You bet. Have a great week. 